I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, as we're continuing now here in week 6, our verse-by-verse series through the fourth gospel in our New Testament, a series that we're looking at chapters 1 and 2 to begin with that I entitled, Jesus is Here. And these first two chapters of John really introduce us to Jesus, who Jesus is. Some of you who are my age or older probably remember this old game show or panel show, and I understand it's had a re-release in modern era, but the game was To Tell the Truth. Anybody remember that show? And the way the show went, of those of you who have saw it, is basically this. There would be a, a panel of four celebrities, and most of those celebrities I didn't know, ever hear of, but they were celebrities according to the panel. And they would have these three contestants who would come on. And the host of the show would tell about a, a true uh, experience that was extraordinary or an occupation that was somewhat different. And one of those three contestants was the legitimate person but the other two were imposters. And so through the course of the show, the, the panelists would get to ask a series of questions to try to determine which one was the legitimate person and which two were the imposters. And after their time was on, over, they could make their selection. I think this person is the real person. And then after that decision, the host would say something like this. Would the real Troy Walliser please stand up? And you'd see the three contestants kind of shuffle and move, one maybe rise, and then finally, the real one, the legitimate one, would stand up. I think it might be helpful sometimes to ask this question. Would the real Jesus please stand up? Because there's all kinds of concepts and ideas and perceptions about Jesus. In fact, that's the title of my sermon, The Real Jesus. The Real Jesus. Even throughout American history, there have been different views and different ideas and different concepts about who Jesus is. Uh, in the 1700s, around the founding of this nation, there was a real look at Jesus as something of an enlightened sage, mainly through the Jeffersonian lens. Thomas Jefferson, as most of you know, had his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible, and that Bible was not really a Bible because he took the New Testament and he began to cut out things that he found objectionable things that were supernatural, things that were miraculous. And you ended up with a Jesus who had a lot of nice teachings, but nothing supernatural and certainly no form of redemption through his shedding of blood. You move into the 1800s, the 19th century, and really that period of American history looked at this Jesus who was kind of like a super nice guy. He was one who wouldn't hurt a flea. And even a lot of the hymns that came out of that, that period of time were really kind of sappy, sweet, Jesus-y type songs. Then you turn into the first part of the 20th century in the 1900s, and Jesus really starts to look like a social activist. Some of you are far, probably familiar with the book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps, which came out around the turn of the century. And this fictional story centered around a, a question. Anybody remember the question? What would Jesus do? People began asking this question. Well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Some 90 years later, in youth groups that I was a part of, we all had the WWJD bracelets. 
What would Jesus do? And so Jesus was looked as, at as some kind of a social activist in the sense that he would do the right thing at the right time with the right motives. And this is certainly true, but if that's your only view of Jesus, that he's just this social activist who does the right thing at the right time to help people who are in, in need, well, that is a severely lacking picture of Jesus. You get into the 1970s and 1980s, then you start to see what I would refer to as the moral majority Jesus. And this Jesus looked an awful lot like a conservative Republican. In response to the moral majority Jesus, there was an organization that came together in 1985 called the Jesus Seminar. And this was a collection of so-called scholars who came together, and they began to put together their idea of Jesus, who looked an awful lot like a liberal Democrat. <laughs> It's interesting, as you go through history, the Jesus that people conceive of in their minds ends up looking a lot like themselves. He agrees with everything I agree with, and he condemns everything I condemn. You know what that's called? Idolatry. You've created a God for yourself. So will the real Jesus please stand up? This is a similar situation in the first century. In the first century, when, Jesus, when John wrote this gospel account around 90 A.D., there were all kinds of ideas now some 50, 60 years removed from Jesus' resurrection and ascension about Jesus. Some said he wasn't truly God. Some said he wasn't truly man. Enter the gospel of John. And John is presenting to us the real Jesus. And in the first 18 verses that we studied for four weeks, we saw what's known as the prologue where John lifts up and he elevates the nature of Jesus, that he is God, but not only is he fully God, we see in verse 14 that he's fully man who took on human flesh and tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. And then John presents for us, we saw last week, the first witness, the first testimony in the courtroom of the world to give testimony for Jesus. His name, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist gave his testimony before this delegation that was sent from Jerusalem, a delegation sent to interrogate John the Baptist. Who are you? What are you about? What makes you tick? Why are you baptizing out here in the wilderness? Now, like us, John the Baptist was a product of his culture. He was a product of his language, of his society, of his times. But something enabled John the Baptist to soar above and beyond the common view of Jesus. He had an understanding about Jesus that was inspired. And there seems to be a couple things inherent in John that gave him the capacity to recognize Jesus and thereby to give testimony about Jesus. One thing we considered last week was his humility. John the Baptist's humility. He, he said to the delegation sent from Jerusalem, among you stands one you don't know but I'm not worthy to unstrap the sandals from his dirty, nasty feet. He had a humility about Jesus. Later in chapter 3, he'll say, I must become less, he must become more. Well, the second thing that enabled John the Baptist to see Jesus for who he really is, to see the real Jesus, is what we'll see in our passage. Namely, he didn't just comprehend all that was about Jesus in his own initiative and intuition, he had supernatural, divine revelation. 
John the Baptist received from God supernatural divine revelation about the nature of Jesus. As we read our focal passage, I want you to look for that reality. Here's a clue. It's in verse 33. So John says this to those who were assembled around him, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. This is John the Baptist. And said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here's his testimony. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Did you notice in verse 29 at the beginning of this paragraph? It wasn't John the Baptist who went looking for Jesus. It was Jesus who came looking for John the Baptist. Now I want to set this encounter up within the timeline, the chronological timeline of Jesus and John the Baptist here in their ministries. We know from the other gospel accounts, as we put those together and synthesize them together, we know that this event, this encounter between John and Jesus, occurred after John the Baptist baptized him. We know that John the Baptist baptized Jesus there in the Jordan River, and after Jesus was come up out of the water, after being baptized by John, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and Luke chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was, quote, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus goes through the crucible of the most severe temptation ever experienced on the planet by Satan himself, not one of his underlings. And for 40 days, without food or water, Jesus experiences the onslaught of satanic attack. And he comes through that crucible on the other side, and he goes to John the Baptist. He's going to see his cousin, John. And when John sees him coming from the distance, this is when he makes this pronouncement about the true nature of the real Jesus. As John sees Jesus at this pinnacle moment, when the Lord is now inaugurating his ministry, after going through the crucible of temptation, he gives us three glimpses into the nature of of the real Jesus. Three things I want us to see about Jesus. Number one, he redeems us from our sin. The real Jesus redeems us from our sin. And so this is the pronouncement that John the Baptist makes when he sees Jesus walking towards him. Behold, look, pay attention, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I did a search in my Bible app for the phrase, the Lamb of God. In all 66 books of the Bible, that phrase only occurs two times. It occurs here in our passage we're studying this week from the lips of John, and it occurs next week in the study we'll have from the lips of John the Baptist. Two times in the Bible, two times right here in chapter 1. So what did he mean by giving Jesus this unique title to John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Well, given the background of the Old Testament, given the background of Judaism and the Jewish people who were around him, exclusively Jewish people, given the background that John the Baptist himself was Jewish, I think the meaning is pretty clear. If there's one prominent image we see throughout the Old Testament, it's the image of a sacrificial lamb. A lamb, an innocent lamb, that is sacrificed, shedding the lamb's blood for the forgiveness of people's sins. We see this perhaps most profoundly in the book of Exodus chapter 12. This is where we learn that the people of Israel, who had been under severe bondage and captivity and slavery under the cruel thumb of the Pharaoh over Egypt, were delivered from that captivity. And the final plague that came... uh, came upon the people of Egypt through this death angel that went over the entire land. And only those households that had sacrificed an innocent lamb and spread the blood of that lamb over their doorpost were relieved from the wrath and the vengeance that was poured out that night. Only those who found refuge under the blood of the lamb received grace. So now, no doubt, when John the Baptist uses this title, the Lamb of God, he has this in mind, the blood sacrifice and the Passover for those who take refuge under the blood from the wrath of God. If you'll remember the previous day, we looked at last Sunday, in John's testimony before the delegation, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 40. He said, I- I'm the, just a voice crying in the wilderness, make stray the, straight the way of the Lord. I have no doubt in my mind that John was very familiar with another prophecy that Isaiah penned some 13 chapters later in Isaiah 53. You're familiar with it. Look what the Bible says. Surely he, this is Jesus, 700 years before he came, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. How? Like a lamb that is, sled, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This Jesus of Nazareth, John the Baptist declares with divine insight and inspiration, he is the great Passover lamb whose shed blood takes away the sin of the world. He redeems us from our sin and from the consequence of sin. But perhaps the earliest reference to a sacrificial lamb, one of the earliest we find in the Old Testament, is actually in Genesis chapter 22. At God's command, the patriarch Abraham was given the direction to take his son, his one and only son, the son of promise, up Mount Moriah. And the instruction was given to Abraham, there you are to build an altar, and there are you to sacrifice your one and only son to me. Was they're making their way up the mountain, young Isaac makes an astute observation. Notice how the Bible records it in Genesis 22, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide 
for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Isaac's question, where is the lamb, resounds throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, as literally millions of lambs are sacrificed, millions of gallons of blood are shed, none of them had the capacity to fully and finally bring atonement for mankind's sin. So Isaac's question reverberates through redemptive history. Where is the lamb? And the Old Testament closes with that question being unanswered until John the Baptist's testimony answers it. He answers what Abraham predicted. God will provide for himself a lamb. In my second journey to the continent of Africa, I was on mission for two weeks in Zambia. And there in Zambia, I worked with a missionary to reach this very small village uh, out in the bush. Had no running water in the village, no electricity, no phone, obviously. Very remote, very primitive place. The people of that village existed on what they could scavenge, what they could collect, what they could hunt, and what they could grow in the really sandy terrain of that region. I went there, and I camped out in a tent with my team members for seven nights, and every day in the center of this village, we would tell Bible stories. We did what was known as chronological Bible storying, where we went from the Old Testament. We began to tell stories from the Bible to these human beings made in the image of God about how God has been communicating to the world throughout history. And particularly, as we told these stories, we would highlight the appearance of the sacrifice of an innocent animal. So, for instance, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we talked about the fact that God himself slew an innocent animal, shed innocent blood to cover the shame and the nakedness of his creation, Adam and Eve. We talked about the fact that after the flood subsided, that when Noah got off the ark, he took a couple of animals, he took a couple of sheep, and he sacrificed them in worship to the God who saved them through the sin of humanity. We obviously talked about Abraham and Isaac in that fateful moment when the knife was held over his son Isaac and God provided a ram in the thicket. So these lowsy people in Zambia began to understand the concept of the sacrifice and the shedding of blood for the sin of humanity. Day five, I had the great privilege of telling the story of John the Baptist. And as I spoke to that 30 or 40 people who were gathered around me, and I got to this critical moment when Moses, my translator, said to them in their language, Behold the Lamb of God. There was an audible gasp among the people. They recognized the weight of this moment that God has provided for himself a lamb, and his name is Jesus. When we understand this statement that the God of the universe who takes away the sin of the world has provided a lamb, we realize the real purpose for which Jesus came. This is the real Jesus. 
people today wonder, what's the big deal about Jesus? What's all the hubaloo about? People don't understand. In, in John's day, they were looking for a deliverer who would throw off the Roman occupation and the Roman oppression. And even in our day, people are looking for a deliverer, maybe a political figure or a social reformer who will bring about real change. Friends, there's no salvation except in Jesus. Those things are temporary. But our deepest need is determined by what kind of Savior we're really longing for. Whether you know it or not, you're longing for a Savior who will forgive your guilt and sin. Do you realize, friends, this is your greatest need? This is your deepest need? Every one of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, we have willfully broken the law of God. And we stand condemned under His righteous justice. But not only is God a God of justice who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished, God is a God of love, of mercy, of grace, of compassion. And out of His great love, He has sent the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter, reflecting on the Isaiah 53 passage we read earlier, put it like this. He said this in chapter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds you have been healed. If today you were to go visit the ruins in the ancient city of Rome, you'll find there an arch. It's called the Arch of Titus. I've got a picture of that arch. It was built in A.D. 81, about 10 years before John wrote this gospel. And what the Arch of Titus commemorates and memorializes is how the Roman emperor, the Caesar, completely decimated and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And if you look closely at that arch, you'll see there is some carvings there. And on those carvings, you see some Roman folks taking away the spoils of their conquering. They're taking away the great golden menorah that was in the Jewish temple, the Jewish temple that is now a pile of rubble. And along with them are also some captives being led away captive to presumably go back to Rome to be put on the auction block to be sold as human chattel in a much more severe way. You and I were slaves to sin. We were slaves to a much more tyrannical oppressor than Titus ever thought about being. But if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus has set you free. Jesus has paid your debt. You know, one of the most profound images in all of human art and work is the image of a lion, this king of the beasts, the king of the jungle. He's seen as someone who's a victor, who's royal, who's strong, who is prominent. You know that Jesus is called the lion of Judah? We sang about it in the first song we sang. Jesus is this victor. Jesus is this conqueror. Jesus is this one who defeats the enemies. In fact, the same author of the Gospel of John got a heavenly vision of the lion. 
He recorded in Revelation chapter 5. He also wrote the, the book of Revelation. Notice how John describes his vision of this victorious lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He writes this, And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. They cried out to him, there's a lion who has conquered. There's a lion who is victorious. John turns to see the lion, and what does he see? A sacrificial lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. What does that mean? He was slain, but he's been resurrected from the dead. Herein lies our triumph. Herein lies our victory. And friend, herein lies our hope. Jesus is alive. He was slain. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Our victory is not in anything we could do. Any energy we can muster up. Our victory can only be found when we rest it, our hope, in the line of the tribe of Judah, who is standing as a lamb, though slain. Friends, this is the real Jesus. He redeems us from our sin. Here's the second thing about the real Jesus. Number two, he regenerates us with his spirit. Now, in this passage, John expands on what we we had said the day prior about the supremacy of Jesus over his own ministry, about the greatness of Jesus' work over his own work. And he differentiates here between their two ministries by pointing out the difference in their baptisms, the nature of their baptisms. Notice again verse 33. John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So friends, this is the real Jesus. The real Jesus is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I want us to think about this information John the Baptist is revealing here by, by divine inspiration. The baptism that's referenced here is, is something that Jesus, in fact, talked about at the end of his life. After his death, burial, and resurrection for 40 days, he was with his disciples, and he was teaching them. He was instructing them. One of the things Jesus said just before he ascended to heaven is he referenced his cousin John the Baptist from three years earlier, from this event right here. Notice what Jesus said to his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. He says, John, that's John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This would, in fact, be the fulfillment of what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1 that we're studying this morning. And so, of course, in Acts chapter 2, we know it as the day of Pentecost. There, those 120 believers were gathered together in the upper room, and there on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down upon them and rested upon them in something like tongues of fire. You know, I think the greatest example of the transformation that came in their lives because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is none other than the Apostle Peter himself. If you'll remember, 50 days earlier, before the day of Pentecost, Peter made some pretty bold predictions to the Lord. He said, Lord, 
even if other, all these other wannabes desert you, I'm never going to desert you. Within hours, Peter caved at the questions, even the question of a little schoolgirl. He was trembling in fear. It was his greatest failure of his life. But 50 days later, as he's there in the portico of Solomon's portico in the temple, he proclaims the gospel with boldness. He preaches the first Christian sermon, and 3,000 souls were saved. How do you describe that? How do you explain that? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this baptism of the Spirit that took place in Acts chapter 2 in this way is unique, really, to their situation. You see, because they were true blue believers in Christ, they believed that Jesus died, they believed that Jesus was resurrected, they believed he was the Lamb of God who took away their sin, but yet it is in this transitional phase that they had a subsequent filling or baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, there are some groups today, some churches today, organizations today, that contend there are two parts of salvation, essentially. There's conversion when you become a believer in Jesus, and then subsequent to that, there is this event called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, often referred to as a second blessing. Uh, This is not the way it works anymore. In fact, it's really important for us to understand the context when we study the Bible and the, the types of genre of writing that we're studying. So the book of Acts is the history book of the New Testament. Because of that, The book of Acts is descriptive of all that took place, but not necessarily prescriptive for how we should lead or function as Christians or as a church. It describes what happens to them, but if you want to know how we are prescribed to live and to function, we read the epistles, the epistles of John, the epistles of Peter, the epistle of James, the epistle of of Paul. So now, when does this baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? When is the event when we are filled with the Spirit? It happens at the moment of your conversion. You're baptized with the Spirit fully and completely at the very moment of your conversion. Let me just show you one passage that communicates this. It's the passage where I grab this word, regeneration. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's spirit baptism, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That word regeneration is just a big Bible word that refers to the time when you were born again, the time when you were taken from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. At that moment, when you were transferred as an old creature into a new creature, all old things have passed away, new things have come. That is in an instant, in a millisecond at the moment of your conversion. And that moment of regeneration, do you remember when that happened to you? At that moment, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. The washing of renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now the reason this is important to understand is this. Listen, Christian. The same benefit package, to use that terminology, that came with the first century Christians who were baptized with the Holy Spirit is the same benefit package available to us today. What is it? What's the benefit of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, we can look at it from the lips of Jesus. 
Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What's going to come when you're baptized in the Spirit? Look at Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Somebody should have said amen right then. Oh my goodness. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Friends, when the copes go to Guatemala tomorrow morning, they have the power of the Holy Spirit. This is awesome. This is profound. The Spirit gives you a power to live in a way that you ha could have never lived before. Obviously, all of us sin. All of us struggle with different types of temptations and different bents. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to be slaves to that sin. We are liberated from the bondage of sin by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're set free from that slavery. In fact, notice how Jesus put it a few chapters later in John chapter 8. Jesus said this, So, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul expands on this freedom we have from the Spirit's power in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He says this in chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The indwelling, the empowering Spirit of Jesus sets us free from the bondage to sin, where we can now live in obedience to God. We can live in submission to His commands, being conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And what John the Baptist is talking about here is often referred to as the double cure. The double cure, what is that? Look at the next slide. The promise of the Lamb of God is to be delivered from the penalty of sin. The promise of the Holy Spirit is to be delivered from the power of sin. Isn't that beautiful? Because Jesus has shed his blood, we are delivered, we are set free from the penalty that our sin deserves. But because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're delivered from the power of sin that would hold us captive in this life. Augustus Toplady was a pastor and hymn writer in the mid-1700s. He captured this double cure in his hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. He wrote, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. What's the double cure? Save from wrath, save from judgment, save from the punishment we deserve because of the penalty of our own sin. The blood of Jesus has saved us from that. What's the other double cure? Being made pure. Being made to walk in holiness, in righteousness. What, how does that happen? Through the washing of the water of the Holy Spirit when we've been baptized in the Spirit. What a promise. What a gift. You see, the real Jesus, friends, is not just some spiritual guru. The real Jesus is not just an example for morality or how to live your life. The real Jesus is not just an elevated teacher. No, the real Jesus is the Lamb of God who shed His blood to save you. And the real Jesus is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to baptize you and empower you to live a holy life in obedience to him. Would the real Jesus please stand up? Thirdly, I want you to see, number three, he rules us as God's son. 
Interestingly, twice in this passage, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him. And when I first read that, I thought, what? He's your cousin. <laughs> you know him. Surely, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, recounted the story to his son about the event when the angel visited Zechariah and said, you and your wife are going to have a baby in your old advanced age, and this baby is going to grow up, and he's going to be used by the Lord to lead many back in repentance to, to God. And what did Zechariah say? That could never happen, right? And what happened to Zechariah? angel said, well, you ain't going to talk anymore. <laughs> He's mute until the baby's born. Surely John the Baptist had heard that story. Surely John the Baptist had heard the story from his own mother. Many times, cousin Mary, little young 15-year-old Mary, she came to visit me when I was pregnant with you. I was nearly ready to deliver. She was just a couple months along. And when she greeted me, you were filled with his spirit, and you jumped inside my womb. I've no doubt that over and over again, his father and his mother spoke over him words of blessings, and yes, even words of prophecy. God is going to use you greatly. He knew about Jesus. He knew the stories. He knew that Jesus is uh, he's, he's gifted. <laughs> he's different than all the other boys in town. He knew Jesus was different. He was righteous, upright in his character, in his actions, in his language. So much so that when Jesus first came to him to be baptized by John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist say? Uh, it should be you baptizing me, not the other way around. But finally, John the Baptist relented. Okay, Jesus, my cousin, I'll baptize you. Notice how meticulous Matthew records that event matthew three sixteen says this and when jesus was baptized by john immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him that's john the baptist and he john the baptist saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it was in that instance that John the Baptist had divine revelation about the true nature of Jesus. He was not just Mary's son and Joseph's adopted son. He was not just a cousin who was from Nazareth. He was not just a carpenter who worked in the wood shop. He was not just this elevated figure. He was not just a spiritual guru. He was not just an enlightened teacher. What did he say? Look at verse 34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that he is the Son of God. He's declaring the deity of Christ. He's declaring the very divinity of Jesus. Although he knew many things, he had not fully processed or was he fully aware of the true nature of Christ. And it all happened when he heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the unique son of God? We can understand this by simply looking at the way Jesus' enemies responded to his own profession that he was the son of God. They responded with hatred. 
In fact, notice how it happened in Matthew 26. The high priest demanded that Jesus answer a question, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They, the Sanhedrin, answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Why would claiming to be the Son of God elicit that response? Spitting and striking, proclaiming he deserves to die. Because they understood to say that you are the Son of God is to mean you are of God. That you have the same substance as God. The same nature as God. The same character of God. But it is this truth that was the revelation that John the Baptist had received at Jesus' baptism. He was, in fact, the Son of God. And this is how it informs us even today, friends. Look at this next slide. If Jesus' saving work as the Lamb of God calls us to trust Him as Savior, Jesus' divine person as the Son of God calls for us to surrender to Him as Lord. He is God. And you have no other option. You have no other response. Once you know this, then to surrender to him as the ruler and the Lord of his life. We, we trust him as Savior, and we repent to him as Lord. I'll close with this. I've read that when paddlewheel boats were used to travel up and down the Mississippi River, those steam-driven paddle boats, there was a custom, a practice that would happen when two paddle boats would pass each other on the river. Those who were riding, the passengers would gather on the rails in all of their nice clothes for the river trip, and they would wave to one another and holler to one another and just say hi as the two paddle boats crossed one another on the river. One day, as two of these paddle boats were crossing and passing one another, the stoker of the steam and the shoveler of coal ran up to the deck. And there, covered in soot, he yelled out, That's Captain Douglas. He's the greatest captain on the Mississippi River. One well-dressed passenger looked at him and said, How can you know that's the greatest captain on the Mississippi River? And the man covered in soot said, I was on his boat working one time. And I fell overboard. I can't swim. And I cried out, Help me! Help me! And the captain of the ship jumped off of his level and saved me from the raging torrent of the river. And so every time I see his boat, I've got to tell everybody that's the greatest captain on the Mississippi River. I don't know about you, but I've got a similar story. I was sinking deep in sin. So far from the peaceful shore, you have no idea. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. And from those waters, he lifted me. And now safe am I.
And from now on, as long as I have breath, I'm going to declare he's the greatest captain. He's the master of my life. He's the Lord of the universe. Would the real Jesus please stand up? The real Jesus is the Lamb, the Liberator, and the Lord of the universe. And that leads to my last thought. Those who have been fully forgiven and freed by Jesus will joyfully follow him as Lord.